0: this is Cassidy and welcome to What Crime Is It? This is a true crime podcast and YouTube channel. We follow crimes from yesterday and the crimes of today. We talk a little bit about the crime itself, but what I really like to talk about is why. What could have possibly made somebody do what they did? And not that there's ever any reason to be violent or excuse for murder, obviously. I do think that oftentimes there are clues in someone's past that can maybe give us some answers and maybe it can enlighten us a little bit to catching behaviors before something bad happens. Uh, Obviously, if you like this podcast, please subscribe, please leave your comments below. And today we will be talking about Eileen Mornos. Eileen Mornos was the first female serial killer on record, and she um, is just a fascinating case. There's been a lot of documentaries. There was a film made about her. Charlize uh, Theron was, uh, I guess, she won the Academy Award playing her, and she she I thought she was incredible in it. Uh, the movie was called Monster. And we've seen a lot, I think, about when Eileen was in prison, her, her crimes. Um, And, you know, you'll see, and I'll talk a little bit about, about her in this podcast and about the people in her life. Um, You know, they, they really kind of depicted her as a monster. They called the movie that. My question is, you know, how do you become a monster? So here we go. I hope you enjoy. So from late, 1989 to the fall of 1990, the bodies of seven men were discovered along Florida's highways. So at first, police hadn't connected the murders because they were discovered in different jurisdictions. But when two women were seen leaving the scene of an accident after having swerved and crashed off the road, uh, they were in the stolen car of a man named Peter Abraham Seams. I believe it's Seams, S-I-E-M-S sounds about right a man who had been reported missing they began piecing it together there had been crimes up and down the highway off of different exits but they started to tie to tie these crimes together Uh, At that time, an eyewitness, um, multiple eyewitnesses, in fact, they helped police sketch uh, a composite of the two women. They were seen fleeing the crash. Um, They put posters all over the place saying that these women were wanted in connection with the murders. They dubbed these women the angels of death always have to have a nickname. I don't know why that is. And I'm always curious who comes up with these names, but angels of death. So police believe their pair, that the pair was working in tandem, that they were luring men with a damsel in distress act. They were likely appearing stranded or in need of help along Florida's I-75. And once a man stopped to help them, they would rob and kill the men. And in one case, at least steal their car. So it wasn't long before an area prostitute was tracked down at the last resort biker bar in Volusia County. Uh, She was taken into custody. Her name was Eileen Mornos. Her friends called her Lee, and she confessed to all of the murders. Her accomplice and lover, Tyria Moore, known as Ty, had fled to Pennsylvania, where detectives subsequently took her into custody. Eileen claimed that all of the men had solicited her for sex, and upon becoming violent, she was forced to defend herself she would later recant that version of events. Not that the men were her customers, but that she had killed them in self-defense. And because of the killing spree, as we said earlier, Eileen Wuornos was considered the first female serial killer in a non-caregiving capacity. So meaning there have been female nurses and home care workers who have murdered patients. Um, I'm not sure why there needs to be this kind of distinction, but this is how they, they distinguished her. So in the end, she would waive her appeals and really fight to be executed, to leave what had always been a hostile and savage world from really the moment she entered. Perhaps she saw death as a merciful outcome as she claimed or, or you know, wanted to be with God. She had found God at the end. The other, I don't know, the other... Thing to consider is that maybe this was the final act of a truly self-loathing person, and this was her way of just ending her life and ending the hatred that really she had for herself by then. So, how does this happen? You know, uh, eight murdered men. I think that it deserves some kind of explanation for what they encountered on the days they were killed. Um you know, was she born this monster? Of course, we always think of the victims and the victims' families in all of these cases. Uh, We don't take this lightly, and our heart goes out to anybody who is hurting and suffering as a result of any of these crimes. So Eileen Carol Pittman... She was born on February 29, 1956, to 14-year-old Diane Warnos and 16-year-old Leo Dale Pittman. She had a brother, Keith, who was born the year before. By the time Eileen was born, both her parents were separated. Um, They eventually divorced, and later, her father, he was a diagnosed schizophrenic. He became incarcerated for sex crimes against children. Uh, He committed suicide in prison in 1969, and Eileen never met him. Her mother, Diane, she was unable to raise her children at that point and gave both Keith and Eileen to her parents to raise. Their names were Lori and Britta. They were both known to be really severe alcoholics, and you know, older at this point, probably not so prepared to have younger children, but they took the children on and they were told that these were their real parents and that their mother was actually their older sister. Now, their mother didn't come around very often, but she did. So when she was there, they would say that this is your older sister. So, you know, by all accounts, for the most part, um, her home life, Eileen's home life was, was bleak and, and violent. She was subjected to alcohol-fueled beatings at the hands of the man she believed was her father. The punishments would include the sadosexual ritual of Eileen having to strip down naked and clean the strap he would beat her with. Childhood friend Karen Gamble uh, in interviews has said that Eileen was a quiet and withdrawn child who would sit on the stoop of of the uh, school steps while the other children played uh, during recess, I'm, I'm assuming. You know, she describes her as looking lonely and scared and without many friends. Eileen was close to her grandmother, um, but her alcoholism ravaged her body and mind, leaving her powerless uh, to protect or defend Eileen against their grandfather. She obviously was in a very bad way, although I don't think she was a cruel woman. I just think she was a very sick woman. There has been a lot of reporting about the fact that Eileen and her brother Keith had been engaging in a sexual relationship. It, apparently it was common knowledge amongst the local children. And by the time Eileen was 11, she was sneaking out of the house through her bedroom window apparently, and throughout her early adolescence had begun trading sex for loose change and cigarettes with the neighborhood boys. It's an interesting thing when an eleven year go- uh, year old girl is highly sexualized, right? so the accusations that there was possibly a sexual relationship between herself and her brother, I think that this sort of solidifies that for me in my mind, because an eleven year old girl typically wouldn't be sexualized right at that age, so any kind of um promiscuity at that age, any kind of knowledge about sex at that age, you would think would be abnormal and would likely be coming from um, you know, an inappropriate exposure to that in some way. So she's having sex with the boys in the neighborhood. She's becoming well-known for that. This behavior earned her the nickname from the neighborhood kids, Sick Pig. Kids would meet at a place in the woods called The Pits, where they would build bonfires and drink alcohol and listen to music. Eileen would strip down naked at the parties in The Pits and became known for her willingness to perform sexual acts. This was through her adolescence, so now it's 12, 13, 14. She did make one friend, though, a girl named Dawn Botkins, who remembers Eileen as being beautiful, describing her with pretty blonde hair and white teeth and the most beautiful smile. And Dawn said that she felt sorry for Eileen, calling her grandfather a mean, a really mean man, and that Eileen had begun running away and sleeping in the woods, actually, to escape his wrath, probably down at the pits, down at the end of her street is is sort of how they put it. So Dawn always def- you know, defended her friend. She's defended her to this day. And anything that you ever see Dawn being uh, interviewed, she always talks about Eileen being her friend. She said that she would stand up for her when the other teens would call her names or pick fights. You know, Dawn believed her neglect and abuse at home caused this attention-seeking behavior and saw her promiscu- promiscuity as a sign of someone who was desperate for love and acceptance and that she used the only thing that she saw as any value. The only thing that she possessed that was worth anything in her mind was her sexuality. She knew that if she could use her sexuality, she could gain things, money, cigarettes, attention. So Dawn tells about a time when Eileen had saved all of her money to buy alcohol and snacks for a get-together at her house. And how she was so happy when everyone from the neighborhood came. But things turned when she was thrown out of her own party because no one wanted to be friends with her. Dawn said that Eileen was treated terribly by the other kids and that this would be made worse when Eileen would drink. She said that her moods would switch on a dime, that her temper was explosive, that she was becoming really known for this. And I wonder, was this a sign of mental illness right away as a young child, or was this because alcoholism really ran rampant through her family? And you know, not everyone who's an alcoholic is known for violence or blackouts or being mean when they drink but it was something that was clearly the case in her family and it is a very common trait with alcoholics that they become very violent and very nasty so don often talked about how when Eileen would drink you'd want to look out you just would want to stay away that she would be okay for a couple of drinks but then she would sort of hit that line and that was it she would really lose it so she remained friends with her she remained close to her and in 1971 Eileen was 14 and she gave birth to a baby boy. She told her friends, Don Botkins and Karen Gamble, that she'd been raped by a man who lived in the neighborhood and also who knew her grandfather. Eileen was sent to a home for unwed mothers and the baby was given up for adoption. And it was a closed adoption, which basically means that there's no information about this young man. Nobody knows anything about him as far as I can find to this day. Uh, and because it's a closed adoption, there really is no information available. It means that he will remain anonymous, that the family that adopted him will remain anonymous and that he will never be able to know who his mother is. I wonder what he would say. He would be almost 50 now, or he would be 50. I don't know what month he was born, but he'd be, he'd be in his 50th year now. So just months uh, after she had the baby, her grandmother died and it was of liver failure or essentially alcoholism. Her grandfather at that point promptly threw both children out of the home for good. Keith joined the military, but Eileen with nowhere to go slept in the woods at the end of her street. She would wash herself at a local gas station. So about 15 years old she is now, and obviously the winters in Michigan are brutal and she's sleeping outside, she's sometimes sleeping in a car, in neighbors' driveways. She was really struggling to survive. So she dropped out of high school, and she had begun hitchhiking and selling sex to strangers for money and also to get inside out of the cold. Eventually, she made her way out of Michigan and for a time apparently found a home in Colorado amongst the biker gangs and people on the fringes of society. She obviously felt a camaraderie with these people, They wouldn't judge her. They were sort of living on the edge. She was free and she was able to just sort of live amongst them and do her thing and not feel any ties or any judgment. But it was also very cold. And I think because she was still outside and prostituting, she ended up in 1976. She was 20 at this point. She hitchhiked her way to Florida. Now, when she got to Florida, she met a man named Louis Gratzfell. He was a 69 year old yacht club president. So, this is according to Wikipedia. I'm quoting, they married quickly, and the announcement of their nuptials was printed in the local newspaper society pages. However, Warnos continually involved herself in confrontations at their local bar and went to jail briefly for assault. She also hit Fell with his own cane, leading him to gain a restraining order against her within weeks of the marriage. Warnos and Fell annulled their marriage on July 21st after only nine weeks. So yeah, so that was a disaster, but I I do, I can't help but think, right? This was probably the one chance that she had at being normal, at having a life, a wealthy man, maybe he was one of her clients, they never talked about that, but this was a shot that she had. And unfortunately, at this point, she was probably too wild and just had been through too much and was too caught up in drinking. And who knows if she had mental illness at this point, completely out of control. Her, her anger and her rage was totally out of control. And this is by all accounts, right? And, and like I said, you know, we want to be held accountable for our actions always. And I understand that that is probably how a lot of people would view that. But there is also something to be said that if somebody's suffering from severe mental illness, only being made worse by alcohol and the fact that she had Really a terrible, terrible, loveless childhood. You know, it's hard to um, judge too much somebody whose emotional outbursts are out of control at that point, and the fact that she's so angry and she's so scary that people just don't want to help her, they don't want to be near her. And because she's an adult. And she's really living you know, on the fringes and kind of off grid. There's really nothing anybody can do. So she's sort of off to the races at this point. It was around this time that her brother Keith had died of cancer, uh, throat cancer to be exact. Eileen returned briefly to Michigan for the funeral, but she was arrested for assault after hitting someone at a local bar with a pool cue. Back in Florida, Eileen continued her life of heavy drinking, prostitution, and petty crime her wild behavior, violent outbursts. It just all led to more charges and arrests. Uh, on May 20th, 1981, a 25-year-old Warners, uh, she held up a convenience store. She held up the clerk actually in Edgewater, Florida. She had a gun and uh, she was a quick, quickly arrested. They identified her and she did three years in penitentiary. So a solid three years, someone with her issues, goes to prison. And, you know, I don't know, would this have made her a better person? Likely not. She was released on June 30th, 1983. And of course, the only thing that she knows how to do, especially now that she's an ex-con, is prostitution. She began passing bad checks. She was shoplifting. She was stealing cars. Uh, In 1986, she met a hotel maid named Tyria Moore. The two would become involved, they moved in together, and Warnos supported them with their earnings as a prostitute. They shared interest in shooting guns and hanging out at local bars and getting drunk on Eileen's dime. So this is again from Wikipedia. On July 4th, 1987, Daytona Beach police detained Warnos and Moore at a bar for questioning regarding an incident which they were accused of assault and battery with a beer bottle. On March 12th, 1988, Warnos accused a Daytona Beach bus driver of assault. She claimed that he pushed her off of the bus following a confrontation. Moore was listed as a witness to the incident. So it seems to me that the two of these, um, that these two got together and just sort of fueled each other's craziness, right? Drank together, got violent together. Cause problems, uh, possibly not the best influence on one another. But, you know, it would be, I think it's easy to sort of judge that, but then also to say that probably for the first time, Eileen had somebody, had a partner, be it a partner in crime, but just somebody who was there for her, somebody that she, in her own way, in the way that she knew how, felt close to. Somebody to live for, somebody to earn money for, somebody to take care of, you know? I think she believed that she loved her. She said that she loved her all the way up until she died. So after years of prostitution, hard living, and prison time, Eileen had begun losing her looks. So her once white teeth, they'd yellowed from smoking and lack of care. Her skin was aged, her body was tired, and it was getting harder for her to earn money as a hooker. She was really um, not as busy as she was. There was apparently a big military clientele where she was living and many of these men were be- being sent to the Gulf at this point. So Trisha Jenkins is a, a defense attorney for Wornos, and she's quoted as saying that her lover, I mean, this isn't, isn't an exact quote, but this is what she was basically saying. She said that her lover Ty was putting pressure on Eileen to make money. That Eileen really loved Ty and wanted to spend time with her, but that in order to do so, Eileen needed to always have cash. Um, Ty did have her own job, but apparently she was very, um, she was sort of hard on Eileen about making sure that she had money and more money and that they could always live comfortably, that they could keep drinking, that they could keep paying the rent, whatever it was. But the only way that Eileen knew how to make money was being a prostitute. So on November 30th, 1989, an electronic store owner named Richard Mallory, a convicted rapist, would be Eileen's first victim. So what am I trying to say? Oh, because she needed to make more money, she needed to go kill people? No, that is not what I'm saying. That's not what I think. But I do think that there was pressure. I think that she was mentally ill. I think that she was probably desperate to hang on to the only person that she'd ever been close to really in her life, the only consistent person in her life. And I think that she wasn't making money as a prostitute anymore. I think she probably was very angry. I think she probably hated men. Maybe she had reason to hate men she claimed that her victims all were abusive to her in some way she later recanted that like i said this man was a convicted rapist he was the only one from what i understand and i'm in no way saying well because he was a convicted rapist he obviously raped her that's not what i'm saying the other men um their families a lot of them have come forward to say that there was no way that they were soliciting a prostitute you know um I don't know if they all were or they all weren't, but from this point, she had an agenda. She had a 22 caliber rifle. She was going to bring the men into her car or that she was going to get into their car rather, either way. She was going to take them to a remote location, um, which is where these men were always found. They were, oh, most of them were found not dressed. And it was easy to do this to them, right? Because they're pulling off of the side of the road. They're going into a place where no one can see or hear them. And she would rob and shoot them. The rest of the victims were Richard Charles Mallory, aged 51. David Andrew Spears, aged 47. Charles Edmund Karsgadden, aged 40. Peter Abram Seams, which is the man whose car she stole, Troy Eugene Burris, aged fifty; Charles Richard Humphreys, aged fifty-six; Walter Gino Antonio, aged sixty-two, and I believe that's all of them. All of the bodies were found except for the man whose car they they had uh, stolen, which is Peter Seams. They were not ever able to retrieve his body, but because they were found in his car. They do believe that he was one of her victims. They don't know where he is. So upon their arrest, they went and got Ty in Pennsylvania, and she ultimately cut a deal. She agreed to wear a wire and get a confession from Eileen, and also to testify against her at trial in exchange for total immunity. So it ensured that Eileen would receive the death penalty for her crimes. During her trial, another brother actually emerged. Um, he agreed to testify as well, Barry Warnos. I think Barry Warnos may have been her mother's brother. And because she was raised to believe that her grandparents were her parents, although she did find out that they were not her real parents, she found out probably in her adolescence, probably about 14 or 15 is when she realized it. I think Barry may have actually been her uncle. Barry Warnos testified and he said that Eileen was not abused by their father, that it was a pretty straight-laced household, and yes, the children were spanked, but Barry testified that Eileen used to tell her grandfather, don't lay a hand on me, you're not even my real father. He did add that he had joined the military, however, when she was nine, and that he did not know what took place in the home after that. When asked why Eileen's biological mother, who now lives in Texas, abandoned her, um, he said, quote, it wasn't discussed much in our family. It was a sore spot. And then asked also why he didn't try to contact Eileen Mornos after her arrest. He said, quote, there was no reason for me to talk to her. So immediately, immediately after uh, Warnos' first death sentence, she fired her public defender and hired this stoner lawyer named Steve Glazier. So there are two documentaries by a man named Nick Broomfield. He's a documentarian from England. Um, one is called The Selling of a Serial Killer, and one is called The Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Eileen Warnos, Life and Death, Eileen Warnos, The Selling of. I've seen them both. They're fascinating. Um, but they get to, you get to really see this guy Glazier. He's a hippie. He's pot smoking. He listens to his own music. He's singing. Um, there's a scene where in the car and they're listening, they're listening to, uh, music that he produced himself of him singing Pink Floyd covers. He kind of seems like the whole thing's I wouldn't say a joke, but the fact that he's on camera, he's very um, impressed with the fact that he's going to be in a movie and he's performing for the camera. He apparently had television ads and that was how she found him. He also, um, Nick Broomfield also was interviewing a woman um, named Arlene Prawley. And Arlene Parley was somebody who had been writing. She'd been corresponding um, with Eileen in jail. She's a middle aged, born again Christian, and she preached the gospel. She preached the Bible to Eileen. She was a friend to her. She tried to introduce her to Jesus. And then she convinced Eileen to allow her to adopt her, to become her legal guardian. She said, ah, you know, I, I read Eileen's eyes, and she said there's no way that she could have done the things that she was accused of. So during this time, the two of them demanded $25,000 from Broomfield in order to get an interview with Eileen Wornos. Now, Eileen's on death row at the time, so she's got no use for the money. So Broomfield says this, you know, she's on death row. What is she going to do with the money? So they say, Prolly and Glazer say that Warnos wants them to have the money in exchange for their troubles. So Broomfield settles for, for 10000 and gets his interview with Warnos. although Prolly would eventually re- refuse to speak to him without Glazer present. He, she was talking about she would get a little cut that she got like a, she was getting like an agent fee or something. This is the, the born again Christian who, you know, just wants to bring Jesus to Arlene. Eileen, sorry, sorry. I just find all of it really shocking. You have to watch the documentaries; they're pretty. They're pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing stuff, and it's sad, really. She's being taken advantage of. Glazer changed Eileen's plea. Um, He did it during her second trial. He changed her plea from not guilty to guilty, and he also accepted the additional death sentences on her behalf. You know, he was totally out of his depth as a trial lawyer. He was inexperienced and you know, she was saying at this point, Eileen was saying at this point that she wanted to die. And it's just believed by the documentarian that, you know, Glazer took this literally. And so he changed her plea. Um, you know, it's just difficult because it does seem like at this point Eileen is signing all of her rights away to this woman, Proly, probably and Glazer in cahoots, and now he's trying to sort of get her gone. Um, her claims of self-defense. You know, they started to change. She was saying that she, at this point, Eileen, especially in her interviews with Nick Broomfield, she's ready to die. She wants to go be with Jesus, that it was a lie. Um, you know, the claims, the claims of self-defense, I think... Obviously, there's no way that all eight men tried to rape her, but to say that none of them did or that there was never a reason for her to feel like she needed to defend herself, she wanted to waive all of her appeals and she wanted to be executed as quickly as possible. And in in the justice system, it's considered a willing willing execution, I believe is what they call it. So one of the detectives uh, working on the case tried to look into why Uh, Tyria, Ty, was actually never charged with a crime despite being present for at least some of the murders and being an accessory. um, There was serious speculation that she made an agreement with some of the police officers that were investigating that she would cut them in on any movie or TV deals um, that she may have made. Because she had total immunity, she was able to make money on the crimes, don't forget. Uh, He was told to back off of this case repeatedly that he should stop looking into it. Apparently, one day he came home and he found a note on his front door warning him to keep his mouth shut. A week later, his wife arrived home from the grocery store to find their house broken into. Coincidentally, the only things missing were the Warnos files. So no other items were taken. Basically, this detective has been threatened, told not to look into it. This is what he heard. And if you watch... Eileen's interviews, she, she alludes to this. She alludes to in the, in the documentaries, she alludes to the fact that the police are in on it, that the FBI is in on it. She sounds like she's crazy and she looks like she's crazy, but there are some things that are, there's some evidence to, to some truth with some of these stories. So at this point, everyone in Warner's life had betrayed her. You know, even in the end, no one defended, um, you know, this woman who was clearly declining in mental health. The interviews before her death reveal a clearly paranoid and mentally unstable person, you know, and they're hard to watch. She talks about being spied on through listening devices in her cell and the FBI conspiracy against her. It really begs the question about the illegality of executing a mentally ill individual. Her father suffered from schizophrenia, and we know that these types of mental illnesses are hereditary, but despite this, Warnos's execution took place on October 9th, 2002. She died at 9.47 a.m. Eastern Time, and she declined her last meal and opted for a cup of coffee instead. Her last words were, yes, I would just like to say, I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back, like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. She was the 10th woman in the United States and the second in Florida to be executed since the 1976 United States Supreme Court decision restoring capital punishment. After her death, her friend Dawn Botkins retrieved Eileen's ashes and sprinkled them under a tree near her home. Here, Dawn said, it's peaceful. She can get sunlight and no one can bother her or hurt her anymore. That's it for today. Again, thank you as always for joining me. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe. Please leave your comments below. Looking forward to seeing you all again. Once again, I'm Cassidy and this is What Crime Is It? Hope to see you again soon. Bye.